Hey, Revolution Health Radio listeners. I have some exciting news to share with you. This coming July, I'll be launching my own supplement line called Adapt Naturals. It's the product of my 15 years of research, clinical experience treating patients, and training over 2,000 healthcare professionals around the world. If you're listening to this show, you're interested in optimal health. You want to know how to feel your best, perform at the highest level, prevent and reverse disease, and extend your health span. Sadly, that's getting harder and harder in a modern world that seems completely at odds with these goals. This is why I've created a supplement stack called Core Plus to fill the most common gaps I see in people's daily routines and to support you in living your best life. I'll be sharing more information soon about the Adapt Naturals Core Plus bundle and how it can help you achieve your health goals and thrive in the post-COVID world. I'll keep you posted here on the podcast And you can also join my email list at chriscresser.com for the latest updates. I can't wait to tell you more, so stay tuned. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm going to do another solo episode. I'm going to cover some research studies and share some insights from my clinical practice and just things I've been thinking about recently. So we'll start by talking about the healing benefits of medicinal mushrooms, not the psychedelic type, although I'm very interested in those as well, and we'll be covering them on a future episode. But here I'm talking about mushrooms like reishi, lion's mane, turkey tail, etc. These mushrooms have a long history of use in traditional cultures, and they've also become the subject of pretty intensive research in the modern world. So. I'm going to dive into uh, why I'm excited about those mushrooms and how we can use them to improve our health. Then we'll talk about a fascinating study showing how our gut microbiome influences our food cravings. I've suspected this for years, but we've never had evidence to support it outside of the clinic, and now we do. Then I'll share an insight I've had over 15 years of clinical work with patients and my own experience dealing with chronic illness that I believe will help you make more progress toward your own health goals, whether that means recovering from a chronic illness, improving your performance, or just feeling better and extending your lifespan. And I think this perspective that I'll share not only works with health-related issues and goals, but also with any challenges that we might be facing. We'll briefly cover a new study making the round showing that getting blood sugar under control early significantly reduces the risk of cardiovascular events like heart disease or heart attack in people with type 2 diabetes and what this means for everybody else with high blood sugar. And finally, we'll talk about the growing problem of nutrient deficiency and why I've come to believe that even most people on a relatively healthy diet may be falling short of the optimum levels of some nutrients and what to do about that. All right, let's dive in. Okay, so let's start with medicinal mushrooms. These have become a hot topic with claims they can do everything from boost our defense against viruses and other pathogens, protect us against cancer, support healthy brain function, and even improve our response to stress. But do medicinal mushrooms live up to the hype? Let's find out. Medicinal mushrooms have a long history of use in traditional medicine. Uh, When I was studying traditional Chinese medicine many, many years ago, Um, They were certainly part of my education. In China, they've been used for at least 3,000 years and maybe up to 7,000 years or longer. There's a medical text known as the Shennong Ben Sao Jing, which is the oldest list of medicinal substances that we have discovered yet. It dates back to the 29th century BCE, and it lists several mushrooms, including what we know as reishi, 
today. Then several centuries later, in the 6th century AD, there was another medical text called the Bensao Jing Jing Zhu that lists even more medicinal mushrooms. But the use of these mushrooms uh, wasn't just limited to China. We have a lot of evidence of their use uh, all around the world. For example, one of the oldest medical mummies that was ever discovered, Otzi the Iceman, you might remember uh, the big news stories about that. This mummy was discovered 4,000 years ago in an area between Austria and Italy, and Otzi was found with uh, Piptoporus betulinus in his medicine kit, which is a mushroom that's still used today as a natural antibiotic and antiparasitic. We have hieroglyphs in Egypt describing mushrooms as plants of immortality and sons of gods that were sent to the earth on top of lightning bolts. And in Egyptian culture, mushrooms were so revered that they were only eaten by pharaohs, nobles, priests, and, and used in, in holy rituals. Some sources even suggest that Vikings may have consumed hallucinogenic mushrooms before battle, which certainly casts a new light on their famed berserker method of fighting. And then today, in the modern world, interest in medicinal mushrooms is at an all-time high. They've become the focus of both popular interest and scientific research. There are now over 400 studies published on turkey tail, a specific species of mushrooms alone, which is likely more than the combined research that existed on all medicinal mushrooms just 30 years ago. Why is this? What makes mushrooms so special? Well, number one, they're a rich source of vitamins and minerals. And in fact, some mushrooms have uh, as high as 12% total mineral content. They're rich in zinc, copper, iron, phosphorus, and potassium, and some species of mushrooms even contain vitamin D, although in the D2 form rather than the D3 form. Mushrooms are one of the richest sources of uh, beta-glucans, which is a special type of soluble fiber that is being studied for its immune, cardiovascular, endocrine, and neurological uh, benefits, and we'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. Mushrooms have shown exciting potential for supporting our brain health as we age, and they may play a role in protecting against neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which, as you know, are increasing in prevalence each year, and we don't have great treatments for them. So that's a really exciting potential application of mushrooms. And then medicinal mushrooms can increase our resistance to viral and bacterial and fungal infections, which is highly relevant in the post-COVID era that we're living in now. So I'm going to have an expert on medicinal mushrooms, Dr. Christopher Hobbs, on the show in a couple of weeks, and we'll do a really deep dive on this topic. Um, so I'm just going to kind of give a, a brief overview of some of the benefits of medicinal mushrooms now, and we'll talk in much more detail about them in a couple of weeks. So I, I briefly mentioned beta-glucans, this special type of soluble fiber that mushrooms are very high in. Uh, these beta-glucans have a wide range of functions because of their unique chemical structure. They're often referred to as biological response modifiers because they strongly activate and regulate the immune system. They can increase resistance to viral, bacterial, and fungal infections, inhibit tumor growth, reduce the replication of cancer cells, modulate and regulate the immune system, and even improve our sleep and our response to stress thanks to the connection between the immune system, endocrine system, and nervous system. This is the field known as psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology, probably one of the longest words in the English language. 
but these these beta glucans uh, if you go into pubmed and search for beta glucan you're going to find so many recent articles that are investigating their potential in all kinds of uh, conditions ranging from uh, blood sugar related disorders to cancer to viral infections to you know hpa axis dysfunction and stress related disorders so uh, beta-glucans are really thought to be one of the most bioactive compounds in mushrooms that explains their benefits. But they're not the only compounds in mushrooms that have a medicinal effect. Mushrooms are also rich in terpenes and phenolic compounds. So you might have heard of terpenes recently in all of the media coverage on cannabis and the healing effects of cannabis. And then terpenes are also in the essential oils in plants like lavender and mint. So terpenes are highly aromatic. So when you smell lavender or mint and you get that really strong odor, that's that comes down to terpenes. And then the cannabis plant as well, which is known, of course, for having a very strong odor, and different types of cannabis plants with different medicinal benefits have different odors um, and different names that all comes down to terpenes as well. So different terpenes are thought to have different medicinal effects and mushrooms do have these terpenes and other phenolic compounds. Now the research on terpenes is still relatively new, but it's already very exciting. Uh, they've been shown to be have uh, anti-cancer, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant and liver protective effects. And uh, again, this researchers are really focused on this area because there, there are a lot of potential clinical applications. So I want to talk briefly about some of the most medicinal mushrooms that, that we know of today. There are, of course, thousands and thousands of species of mushrooms. Not all of them have been identified and studied, but there are a few that definitely rise to the top uh, in any discussion of medicinal mushrooms. So one is reishi, which I already mentioned before. It's the top-selling medicinal mushroom around the world and for really good reason. It has uh, several immune supportive and antimicrobial properties. It supports normal glucose metabolism and liver health. It reduces inflammation and protects against oxidative damage. It inhibits tumor growth and it improves cognitive function. And it even relieves symptoms of anxiety, depression, and insomnia, as well as benefiting the lungs and respiratory tract. So that sounds like an almost, almost like a panacea. And, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical of, of claims like that. Uh, but in the case of medicinal mushrooms, these claims are, are backed by both tradition, you know, thousands of years of traditional use in systems like Chinese medicine and other systems around the world, and now uh, modern clinical evidence. And that's why I'm so excited about them. So the second mushroom is chaga. This one has a long history of use in folk medicine, especially by the Kanti people in Siberia. And we now know that it has over 200 biologically active compounds, including betalinic acid. Um, so I mentioned this mushroom that, that Otzi had uh, when he was discovered with betalinic acid. And we know now that betalinic acid has anti-cancer, antiviral, and antibacterial and antiparasitic effects. But what makes it unique uh, and especially useful in cancer applications is that while betalinic acid is toxic to cancer cells, it doesn't appear to harm normal healthy cells. And this is of course the Shangri-La when it comes to cancer because any treatment that we might take, we want it to impact the cancer cells 
but not harm our normal uh, cells. And it appears from early research that chaga can do that. We also know that chaga can help promote healthy metabolic function. It regulates blood sugar and insulin levels, and it also helps to reduce oxidative stress. The next mushroom is lion's mane. This is not only one of the most therapeutic mushrooms, it's also quite beautiful with a coral-like or shaggy mane type of appearance, hence the name. Um, and I encourage you to like go on Google and, and look up some pictures. It's really a gorgeous mushroom and it's delicious to eat. It's one of the best culinary mushrooms. So it is best known for its support of the nervous system and the brain. It helps to repair nerves. It might even regenerate nerve tissue, which very few things can do. And this is what it's being most intensively studied for. It reduces inflammation in the microglia or the, in, in the brain. It inhibits structural deterioration of the brain, which is why it's being studied for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It improves memory and it also improves cognitive function. And now we have studies suggesting that it may support a healthy mood and reduce the symptoms of depression. Anecdotally, in my own practice, I've seen it have pretty miraculous effects in people with uh, neurological disorders. For example, uh, one patient with essential tremor, and we tried the whole functional medicine pantheon, and he definitely improved in a lot of ways, but still had the tremor, um, albeit at a lower level. And lion's mane was the thing that virtually completely stopped the tremor for him. So th this was kind of a shock even to me. I mean, I knew how potent it could be, but this was uh, a pretty dramatic improvement. So lion's mane, uh, when I think of lion's mane, I think of neurological issues, although it has many other benefits, that's perhaps its most exciting application. The next mushroom is cordyceps, or this is actually uh, probably more technically a fungus, and it definitely wins the award for the creepiest medicinal mushroom. It's a club-shaped fungus that grows out of the head of a ghost moth caterpillar that has been completely digested by the fungal mycelium of, of wild cordyceps. So wild cordyceps has the scientific name of Ophicordyceps sinensis. And as you can imagine, it's quite difficult to come by. You don't just go down to the, you know, uh, the, the store to get it because it's a fungus that grows out of the head of a caterpillar. <laughs> The good news is that there is a cultivated form of cordyceps called cordyceps militaris, which is used as a more affordable and sustainable alternative to that wild form of cordyceps. Now, cordyceps has been revered in traditional Chinese medicine for, for well over a thousand years and also in many other Asian countries because it's widely known as a tonic for sexual potency, energy, vitality, and athletic performance. And today we have research uh, that confirms those functions. Uh, studies have shown that cordyceps indeed improves exercise performance and reduces fatigue. It also balances and regulates immune function. Um, it supports sexual health and reproduction. And it may also, this is the most recent research I've seen, it may protect the kidneys from toxins that we encounter in the environment or medications. So when I think of cordyceps, I think of energy, vitality, and immune function. I've long included it as uh, one of the substances in my protocol for protecting against colds and flus and other types of infections. Uh, if you've seen my articles on this, then, then you'll, you're already familiar with cordyceps. 
So next is turkey tail. I mentioned turkey tail briefly earlier because it's been it's the most studied medicinal mushroom with over 400 published studies now, um, more being added every day. And perhaps one reason for this is that it contains a very high concentration of beta-glucans, that special type of soluble fiber we talked about earlier, more than 50% by weight uh, beta-glucan content, which uh, I'm sure contributes to its beneficial properties. So turkey tail is, is best known for its immune stimulating and anti-cancer properties. It's been used in over 40 clinical trials with almost 20,000 patients with stomach, colorectal, esophageal, and breast cancer. And these trials suggest that turkey tail um, may help improve survival rates, reduce the symptoms of, of treatment, uh, chemotherapy like nausea, fatigue, and low appetite, uh, reduce the chances of cancer re reoccurrence, which is really important, and protect healthy cells from the toxic effects of chemotherapy. And then turkey tail, like many other mushrooms, also helps to prevent viral infections and reduce inflammation and oxidative stress. So the next two mushrooms uh, I want to talk about are ones that you're probably already familiar with. You might even use in your kitchen. Uh, the first is shiitake, and it's the second most widely cultivated mushroom in the world. You can buy it at most grocery stores, and it is, of course, um, delicious, at least if you, if you enjoy eating mushrooms. But while it's best known for its culinary uses, it has many health benefits as well. It supports both cardiovascular and metabolic health by lowering uh, cholesterol and regulating blood sugar. It helps prevent viral and bacterial infections, and it's being used by some oncologists during cancer treatment to reduce the side effects of chemotherapy, just like turkey tail, and possibly extend survival times. So maitake is another delicious culinary mushroom that's revered in Japan and other Asian countries for its health benefits. It is best known for its ability to regulate blood sugar and then also for its immunomodulatory effects. It can reduce tumor growth and help to just kind of balance and regulate the immune system. And it's a particularly rich source of some essential nutrients like protein, vitamin D, the D2 form, and then some B vitamins, as well as being a really good source of beta-glucan uh, at 26% by weight. Last but not least is agaricus, and this mushroom comes from the same genus as the mushrooms that we're all probably most familiar with, like button, white button mushrooms you, get, you buy at the grocery store, and then portobello and cremini mushrooms. However, those mushrooms, while being delicious, aren't as well known for their medicinal effects. Agaricus is. It has blood sugar and metabolic effects. It improves in insulin sensitivity, and it reduces inflammation. And it's now also being studied for its uh, supportive effects in cancer treatment. So there are many more medicinal mushrooms. That's by no means a complete list. But I, you know, my research and my discussion with uh, many different mushroom experts, those are definitely my top eight and the ones that uh, I've used the most over the years. So let's talk about how to get the benefits of medicinal mushrooms. One of the most obvious ways is just to eat them, right? And some of the mushrooms that I mentioned just now, like lion's mane, shiitake, and maitake, are delicious. And with a little bit of education and practice, you can start incorporating them into your diet on a regular basis. One important thing to note that I think many people aren't aware of is that you have to cook mushrooms in order to get uh, the full benefits of, of their medicinal value. So the beta-glucans in the cell walls of the mushrooms 
are tightly bound to another compound called chitin, which is a tough protein and sugar polymer that comprises the outer shell of crustaceans like lobster, just to give you an idea of how tough it is. And only about 20% of the beta-glucans are soluble, meaning we, we can actually digest and absorb them without significant heating. So if you want to get the medicinal benefits of mushrooms, don't eat them raw, don't you know throw them in a salad raw. You have to saute them, add them to soups or stews, or, or bake them with other ingredients. So I do recommend that everyone incorporate at least some mushrooms in, into their diet if you digest them and tolerate them well. They're delicious, they can add a lot of variety to meals, and as we've discussed, they have a tremendous medicinal value. However, it, it is true that some of the most potent medicinal mushrooms are either difficult to find in stores, or they are quite bitter, or they're chewy and have um, a texture that a lot of people don't like, and they're much more difficult to prepare. So in those cases, you have two options um, for uh, benefiting from them. One is to make your own mushroom medicine. So for example, chaga and reishi are, are pretty bitter and chewy uh, when they're consumed fresh and they're more difficult to cook with. So in those cases, you could convert the mushrooms into a, a de decoction, which is a tea. You can make a powdered extract or you can make a tincture. Um, and of course, if you're adventurous, you can learn how to gather your own mushrooms and then dehydrate and store them for medicinal use. Now, uh, gathering mushrooms, I just want to remind everyone, does carry risk. There are poisonous mushrooms out there that are toxic and can be lethal. So this is not something you should just do on a whim. Uh, you really need to educate yourself on how to identify toxic mushrooms and and, and gather the, the right types of mushrooms. So um, please do not just go out and do this without uh, properly educating yourself. I mentioned Dr. Christopher Hobbs, who's going to come on the show in a couple of weeks to talk with me about mushrooms. He has a book called Christopher Hobbs Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide. There's a chapter in there about mushroom identification and how to learn more uh, and also on how to make mushroom medicine. But this is something that I don't think you should even learn from a book. You should take a local class or a workshop and go out with an expert and learn your, you know, your, your local environment and ecosystem, what mushrooms are available, which ones are toxic. This can be a really gratifying and, and fun activity to do if you are prepared and educated. So uh, the, the next way to benefit from medicinal mushrooms, if you're not up to um, gathering them yourself and making your own medicine, is of course to take a supplement. So mushrooms have become really uh, popular lately. I'm sure you've seen a lot of articles in, on, online and social media and even in mainstream media. And when that happens, there is often a proliferation of supplements and other you know, products related to that particular compound or substance. And uh, whenever that rush happens, there are some good products and there are plenty of bad ones um, that are made by people who are just trying to profit on the latest trend. We've seen this with CBD. I'm sure many of you can remember where there were just a few brands of CBD available and now you can't throw a rock without hitting someone who's selling CBD and there's you know literally thousands and thousands of CBD products on the market with huge variation of, of quality. So. It's always a concern and it's always something to pay close attention to. So I wanna give you a few tips uh, about what to look for in a mushroom supplement and then uh, share some exciting news with you about a mushroom supplement that I'm working on. So first of all, 
it should contain a blend of the best research and most potent medicinal mushrooms. We, we know, um, as I've just explained, that different mushrooms have different medicinal benefits. And rather than just taking one, uh, it's best to take a blend so you get that full spectrum of benefit, everything from uh, support against infections like viruses to anti-cancer uh, effects to blood sugar regulation to stress modulation. Uh, if we take that full spectrum uh, blend of different types of mushrooms, we get all of those benefits. So the second thing is that it should contain a clinically relevant dose of each mushroom, at least 200 milligrams of each mushroom and, and at least 1600 milligrams as a, as a total dose uh, of the product. I've seen a lot of mushroom products out there that just have, you know, really minuscule doses of the mushrooms that are not really likely to have a therapeutic benefit. I mean, certainly they won't hurt, but they're not going to um, confer the types of benefits that we've been talking about so far. Uh, next one is really important and also uh, pretty rare in the industry. It should be a full spectrum concentrate. We have a tendency in the West to like discover an important compound and then extract that and then you know sell that compound individually. But that's not generally how it works in plant medicine. Uh, plants have a broad spectrum of, of compounds. Already today we've talked about beta-glucans, we've talked about phenolic compounds and terpenes, and there's so many other things that are being studied in mushrooms. And it doesn't make sense to just try to isolate one component like betalinic acid and, and you know, put that into a product because then we're missing out on all of the varied compounds that are in mushrooms and the, the potential interactions of those compounds that we don't even fully understand yet. So as an herbalist myself, uh, I've always been a big believer in full spectrum concentrates, which utilize the whole parts of the plant. So in the case of mushrooms, that would be fruiting bodies, mycelium, primordia, as well as the extracellular compounds that the mushrooms naturally produce, like enzymes, acids, betalinic acid being an example, and antimicrobials. Uh, last but definitely not least, because this is another big issue in, with mushroom products, is the medicinal mushrooms should be grown on sorghum rather than a common material like sawdust or straw or, or even compost. 95% of sorghum is digested, uh, when the mushrooms are grown, leaving only a small amount, about 5% of uh, non-medicinal starch, which is alpha-glucan. And this means that the mushroom product will be much more potent because it's 95% active compounds and only 5% non-medicinal starch, which is benign. Most people tolerate it great, um, but it doesn't have any medicinal value. Whereas a lot of mushroom products on the market contain as much as 50% non-medicinal starch or alpha-glucan. So when you're taking them, you're getting only 50% of medicinal compounds and then another 50% is just inert substance that doesn't have any value. So uh, that's something else to watch out for. So as I mentioned, um, because I've become so passionate about and interested in medicinal mushrooms and I've had such a phenomenal experience with them, with my patients and, and, and myself, and because I've been largely disappointed in the quality of most mushroom uh, products out on the market. And finally, because as, you've, as I'm sure you may have heard by now, I'm launching my own supplement line in July called Adapt Naturals. I decided to include a mushroom product uh, with the initial bundle, which is called the Core Plus Bundle. It's, it ha there are five products and I'll be sharing more about it soon. 
but I have become such a big believer in medicinal mushrooms that one of those five products is a full spectrum mushroom blend with eight the top mushroom species that we talked about. It's called BioAvail Myco, and it's going to be ready in July along with the rest of the bundle. Uh, you won't be surprised to learn that it meets all of the criteria that I just mentioned for, for what a um, good uh, medicinal mushroom product should be. And it's uh, had a game-changing impact on my health and on uh, many of the people's uh, health that I've shared it with so far. So can't wait to tell you more about that. Um, stay tuned for some more information uh, over the coming weeks. And um, now I want to move on to the, the next study to talk about. This one is how our gut microbiota influence our food cravings. So the study was called The Gut Microbiome Influences Host Diet Selection Behavior and was published in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, or PNAS. As I mentioned in the intro, I've long suspected that our gut biome influences our food cravings, and I've seen evidence of it in my practice. For example, uh, we do gut testing on all the patients we work with, and when people report really strong food cravings, we, we almost always will find SIBO or fungal overgrowth or parasites or some gut microbiome imbalance. Um, so I, I knew this to be true from my own experience, but there wasn't any published peer-reviewed evidence that, that backed it up, and it was uh, maybe less clear what the exact mechanism would be. So in this study, researchers gave 30 mice that lacked gut microbes. They had a completely sterile gut. They gave them a cocktail of microorganisms from three species of wild rodents that had really different natural diets. And so those different diets led to different gut microbiomes in those mice. And they took the microbes from their those different microbiomes and, and put them in each of the three, three different groups of experimental mice. And they found that the mice in each different group chose different foods, which indicated, of course, that their microbiome directly influenced their food cravings. Now, we've known for a long time about the gut-brain axis, which is a bidirectional link between the brain and the gut. Most of the output of our brain goes into something called the pontomedullary complex, which in turn uh, empties into the vagus nerve. And as you may know, the vagus nerve innervates our entire digestive tract. But the connection works the other way too, where compounds that are produced in the gut uh, affect the brain. So an example of this would be byproducts of the digestive process signal to the brain that we've had enough food and that's how we know to you know stop eating. This study showed that gut microbes can produce similar compounds that hijack this gut-brain axis and change the communication being sent from the gut to the brain in a way that benefits the microbes. So this is a great example of how we live in, in a kind of, uh, well, hopefully a symbiotic relationship with, with microbes, but sometimes it's not in our best interest and the microbes kind of take over uh, to create uh, circumstances that are better for them, right? An example of this is tryptophan, an amino acid that is common in some foods like turkey. Uh, you've probably heard that tryptophan is thought to be responsible for the post-Thanksgiving dinner food coma that many of us go into. Um, but tryptophan is not just in foods like turkey, it's also in some gut microbes. It can then cross the gut barrier, enter the bloodstream and travel to the brain where it's converted into serotonin. And then serotonin has multiple effects on our physiology. One is that it helps us to feel satiated after a meal, 
but another is it gets converted into melatonin, which of course is the hormone that makes us feel sleepy. So that's what explains the post-Thanksgiving dinner food coma. In this study, the authors showed that mice with different microbes in their guts had different levels of tryptophan in their blood, and that may have led at least in part to their different food choices. But while tryptophan is certainly one piece of the puzzle, it's not the only one. Um, in an interview about the study in Science Daily, the lead author said, quote, there are likely dozens of signals that are influencing feeding behavior on a day-to-day -day basis. Tryptophan produced by microbes could be just one aspect of that. So yeah, there are lots, you know, the gut is an incredibly complex system. The microbes in the gut are producing all kinds of compounds all the time, and we're just barely scratching the surface of understanding this. But I think the takeaway from this study and, and how, to, how to use it practically is that if you're having really strong cravings for, for foods, and especially cravings for sugar or other processed and refined foods, uh, which bacteria love sugar, as you probably know, and so do parasites and so do, so do fungi, um, that could be a sign that you have some type of imbalance in the gut, maybe preponderance of, of harmful bacteria versus beneficial bacteria. Maybe you have fungal overgrowth. Maybe you've got a parasite. And that could signal you to uh, maybe go get some testing from a functional medicine provider. Uh, or if you don't have access to that kind of testing, you could, you know, it might just be a, a sign that you need to clean up your diet. You might need to pay more attention to your gut health with things like bone broth, fermented foods, fermentable fiber, probiotics, prebiotics, etc. So I don't necessarily think food cravings are always a sign of, of a disrupted gut. There can be other reasons for that, of course, like low blood sugar, although that is often connected to a disrupted gut as well. But it's very often a sign of that. And so we can kind of use our cravings to um, guide what might be appropriate action for us, um, whether we have access to a functional medicine practitioner and testing, or whether we're just going to make some positive diet and lifestyle changes on our own. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef 
and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. All right, let's dive into the next uh, section here. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about, uh, thinking a lot about over the last several years, really, but particularly over the last few months. So one of the core principles of functional medicine is getting to the root cause of a health problem so we can address it at that level rather than just suppressing symptoms. I'm sure if you've been following my work for any length of time or any other functional medicine clinician, you've heard this a million times, and it's probably in, in large part what drew you to functional medicine. An example would be if you're having a lot of gut and skin symptoms and you came into my clinic, we would test you for a whole bunch of different things, including gut issues, but just a whole spectrum of tests that would help us to identify why you're having those gut and skin issues. We might find, for example, that you have celiac disease, and then that information would be invaluable in helping us to figure out what to do and you know what kind of diet changes you need to make and what other steps we need to take to address those gut and skin problems. Another example would be autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is an underlying process that is driven by many different factors, including diet, gut health, infections, environmental toxins, stress, etc. And testing can shed light on how much each of these factors is playing a role and then what direction we should go in the treatment process. So trying to identify the root cause of a condition and address that cause or those causes should always be a goal and it's a key part of functional medicine. Having said that, the reality is it's not always possible to, to first of all, identify all of the root causes, or second of all, in some cases, it's not possible to address the root causes. Autoimmunity is a, kind of, is a good example. Sometimes even after uh, addressing diet and all of the other um, you know, behavior and lifestyle factors, the immune system is still dysregulated. The, unfortunately, the immune system has a long memory, so once it starts attacking self-tissue, it usually doesn't ever fully stop, and there's always the potential, even if you get it under control, that it will come back. And so if we only focus our attention on identifying and addressing the root cause, we can miss out on other possibilities that can lead to greater health and well-being. I call this myopic focus on, on root cause, root causism, which is a term I borrowed from the cognitive psychologist and linguist Steven Pinker. So Pinker wasn't thinking about health when he coined this term, root causism. He was referring to how we uh, approach complex societal problems. And I want to quote from this passage um, in his book, Enlightenment Now. Quote, this version of historical pessimism may be called root causism, the pseudo-profound idea that every social ill is a symptom of some deep moral sickness and can never be mitigated by simplistic treatments which fail to cure the gangrene at the core. The problem with root causism is not that real-world problems are simple, but the opposite. They are more complex than a typical root cause theory allows. So complex, in fact, that treating the symptoms 
may be the best way of dealing with the problem because it does not require omniscience about the intricate tissue of actual causes. Indeed, by seeing what really does reduce the symptoms, one can test hypotheses about the causes rather than just assuming them to be true. So when I first read this passage in Pinker's book, it stopped me in my tracks. I literally put the book down and took a long walk in the woods near my house at the time. As a functional medicine clinician, of course, the idea of addressing root cause was at the core of my belief system and my approach to treating patients. Could it be that that wasn't always the best lens to see through? Although societal problems and chronic disease are not the same, they are both complex, multifactorial, and systemic phenomena. While root causes always exist, they aren't always identifiable or addressable uh, if we can't identify them, as I just mentioned. So if that's the case, what's the alternative to an exclusive focus on root cause? Well, I'm still trying to find a word or a phrase to express the answer here, but the one I'm using right now is pleiotropy. So this is a term that I borrowed from the context of pharmaceutical medication research and genetics. It's a little bit techy and unwieldy, so if you can think of a better term, let me know. Uh, but pleiotropy is usually defined as the production of diverse physiological or, or psychological effects by a single drug or a gene. An example would be uh, something like the drug metformin, which is typically used to lower blood sugar. It's used by, you know, in the context of diabetes. But metformin has been shown to have a bunch of other effects too. Uh, it has anti-cancer effects and it may even help promote longevity. But here I'm talking about pleiotropy in a more general sense as any intervention that has multiple and diverse effects on us. So this could include things like diet, exercise, uh, stress management, and adjunctive therapies that I've talked about before, like sauna or post-electromagnetic field therapy, PEMF. Could include a shift to a growth mindset, cultivating more pleasure and joy, building resilience, uh, embracing positive psychology, improving your relationships. All of these interventions share one thing in common. They have pleiotropic effects, which means uh, multiple multiple effects across multiple different domains of, in our in our health and even our lives. So, ex for example, eating a healthy diet, it doesn't just have one benefit; it has multiple benefits. Um, and the same is true for exercise, meditation, shifting your mindset. So, just you know, to make this a little more real, imagine a scenario where someone is feeling you know a significant fatigue. If we embraced a 100% focus on root cause, or if we fell into what Pinker calls root causism, uh, we might do a full blood panel, run a bunch of other tests to find the source of that fatigue. Is it B12 deficiency? Is it hormone imbalance? Is it mercury toxicity? On the other hand, if we embraced a 100% pleiotropic approach, at least you know how I'm using that term, we might say, all right, I'm tired, uh, so I'm gonna clean up my diet, I'm going to get more sleep. I'm going to rest in the afternoon or do a, a PEMP session or a sauna session. I'm going to cut down on coffee and maybe I'll take some supplements that are designed to generally improve my, my health and energy. Here's the crucial point. Both approaches might get to the same goal, which is improved energy, regardless of the underlying cause. If it's B12 deficiency, cleaning up your diet could help with that. If it's a hormone imbalance, of course, diet and stress management, more sleep, et cetera, could help with that. 
even with mercury toxicity, doing uh, daily PEMP or sauna sessions, eating a diet that's rich in detox supportive nutrients, uh, and getting more sleep and exercise will all support detoxification. And maybe those aren't enough on their own, but they'll definitely help. I would argue that the best approach is generally a mix of root cause and pleiotropy. Um, but the reason that I'm talking about this is that I've seen some people just get really focused on root cause at the expense of other interventions that are going to make their life better in real time. And this is what Steven Pinker might call root causism. So, for example, let's say somebody is experiencing a whole range of symptoms, including fatigue, but also GI issues, and maybe they're having skin rashes and uh, hormones are out of whack, and, and they're not sure what's going on. And let's say after dinner each night, they have some free time. There's so many different choices that um, someone like that could make about how to spend that free time, right? So they could go online and spend the next two or three hours doing uh, research, you know, searching for what might be the cause of their condition. Uh, they might spend time on social media forums or groups. They might uh, join other forums or groups of people who are dealing with similar situations. And they might really put all of their energy into uh, trying to find the cause or the answer at the expense of doing other things that could actually lead to improvements of their health, even if you don't know what the cause is. So on the other end of the spectrum, after dinner, they might go for a walk in their neighborhood. They might play with their dog or their, or their kids. They might take out their guitar and play some music. Uh, they might watch a funny movie with their partner. Uh, there's so many opportunities for doing things that actually lead to better health right then in the moment. And I think this really also comes down to the understanding of health as a process rather than a destination. So often we think of health as something that we get to after some period of time and think, and, you know, a whole bunch of things that we do. And after we've finally gotten rid of all of the symptoms and causes of our condition, then we will finally arrive at this place called health. But over the years, I've really come to understand health as a, as a living, breathing process that happens from moment to moment. And all of the choices we make from moment to moment and on how to spend our time and what, what interventions to do and where we put our energy and attention, that's what contributes most to health. So I want to be really clear here. I am not suggesting we should, that we shouldn't look for the underlying cause of disease. That's, um, that would be anathema for someone like me as a functional medicine clinician. I still think that's critical and so important for the vast majority of people who are dealing with health issues. But I am suggesting that that's not the only thing we should do. And we should never do that at the exclusion of other interventions that we could engage in that would have these pleiotropic effects and help us start feeling better right away. And even, I would argue, eventually make it easier to find the root causes. So I uh, hope this is helpful for you. It's been a really important realization for me in my own journey earlier in my life with chronic illness. And even now, like informs how I approach all kinds of different issues and problems in, uh, or challenges in my life. When they're complex and thorny, um, I'm always looking for root cause. That's the lens that I look through. But I'm also always you know, trying to find ways that I can 
use this pleiotropic lens as well and um, just think about um, shifting and moving through these challenges in real time by taking steps that, that just generally make them better. All right, so let's talk now about, uh, very briefly about a study um, that's making the rounds on uh, blood sugar and the risk of, of cardiovascular disease. So this one's called Early and Ongoing Stable Glycemic Control is Associated with the Reduction in Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events in People with Type 2 Diabetes, a Primary Care Cohort Study. Whew. These uh, studies often have really long names. All right, so the researchers looked at people that were newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and they separated them into three groups. Uh, one group with A1, hemoglobin A1c below 7.5%, next group uh, with A1c between 7.5 and 9%, and the last group with A1c above 9%. And then they, they followed them for, uh, I think it was a year, and, and saw uh, observed what, what happened. They found that the people who went from having A1C at diagnosis in the highest group, over 9%, to being below 7.5%, uh, so these are the folks that really took action and um, lowered their blood sugar, their risk of cardiovascular event was, was cut by 25%. On the other hand, those who had the highest uh, variability in blood sugar or, or see, saw increases in blood sugar had 51% greater risk of cardiovascular disease. So this shouldn't surprise us, right? There's, there's no big aha moment here, but it does support what we've been talking about for many years, which is the earlier we attend to our, uh, our health and well-being, the earlier we intervene when there's an issue, the better the outcome will be. So this doesn't just apply to people with type 2 diabetes, it applies to people with any blood sugar abnormalities. In the clinic, when we treat patients, if, if somebody has even high normal blood sugar, we're immediately starting to look at what we can do to bring that blood sugar down into the optimal range. We're not gonna wait until they develop prediabetes to take action. We're certainly not gonna wait until they develop full-fledged type two diabetes to take action. Unfortunately, that is typically what happens in the conventional model. But as Ben Franklin famously said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that is, absolutely the case when it comes to medicine, uh, perhaps more than any in any other field that I can think of. So what does this mean for you? If your blood sugar is starting to creep up, let's say it's in the low 90s consistently or maybe in the mid 90s. Yeah, technically, if you go to the doctor, they'll, they'll say, hey, you're fine. You're in the normal range. All of a sudden, theoretically, once you hit 99, even if you were at 98 for years before that, now you're pre-diabetic. Of course, it doesn't work like that. These things exist on a spectrum. There's no kind of binary thing that happens magically when you go from 98 to 99, even though technically you go there from normal blood sugar to prediabetes. So we want to always be looking at these things on a spectrum. And if your blood sugar is starting to creep up, now is the time to take action because it's so much easier to, re to reverse high normal blood sugar than it is to reduce reverse prediabetes and in turn it's so much easier to reverse prediabetes than it is to reverse type 2 diabetes once you get to a certain point in type 2 diabetes where you where you're losing beta cell function and, ins and the capacity to produce insulin it might be impossible to to fully reverse and you might be dependent on something like metformin or or even insulin at that point so it's always important to take action early 
And of course, this doesn't just apply to high blood sugar, it applies to you know lipid disorders and all kinds of other things in, in health and medicine. All right, last, I wanna talk about how over the years my my view uh, on nutrient status has evolved and changed and, and why I think that most people, even on, on a healthy diet, um, may be falling short when it comes to some important nutrients. So as you know, I've always been an advocate of meeting as many nutrient needs as possible through food. That's just been a core foundation of, of my approach. And in an ideal world, it would be possible to do this for every single nutrient that we need. But in the world that we live in now, this is extremely challenging uh, for, for many reasons. First, most people just don't eat well in, in the industrialized world in particular. In the U.S., 60% of calories come from ultra-processed foods. Not just processed foods, but ultra-processed foods. Uh, these foods are like, you know, pizza, crackers, cake, cookies, etc. All kinds of foods that come in bag and box, sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, sugar, flour, seed oil. All of these foods are are nutrient poor but calorie dense so they're high in calories but they're very low in the essential micronutrients that we need they also disrupt the gut microbiome which has so many different effects some of which we've discussed uh, in this episode and they interfere with nutrient absorption so even if you're eating nutrients in other foods you're not going to absorb as, as many of them because of these ultra processed foods so this explains why the majority of Americans are deficient in several essential vitamins and minerals. Data from the NHANES survey in the U.S. from 2007 to 2010 suggests that 100% of Americans don't get enough potassium, 94% don't get enough vitamin D, 92% don't get enough choline, 89% don't get enough vitamin E, 67% don't get enough vitamin K. I could go on, um, but just literally every single nutrient, essential nutrient that you think of, um, most Americans are not getting enough. But as bad as this picture is, it only tells part of the story. These statistics on the prevalence of nutrient deficiencies are based on the RDA, or Recommended Dietary Allowance. There are several problems with using the RDA as a benchmark for nutrient intake. The first is that the RDA is the amount that's required to avoid disease, not the amount that we need for optimal health. So an example is that you might have enough vitamin C to prevent scurvy, which is great, but not enough to ensure adequate immune defense against pathogens and prevent oxidative stress. Now, I know if you're listening to this podcast, you don't just care about avoiding disease, you want to live your best life and, and have you know optimal health. So this is where the RDA really falls short. That's the, the most important shortcoming. Another is that RDA doesn't consider the presence of chronic health conditions that increase demand for nutrients or reduce absorption of nutrients. So a classic example of this that I've talked about a lot is vitamin D. We know now that conditions like obesity, inflammation, GI disorders like SIBO or inflammatory bowel disease, all of these either decrease the absorption of vitamin D or in the case of inflammation and obesity, they, de um, they also decrease the conversion of uh, sunlight to vitamin D. They also increase the demand for vitamin D. So it's a double whammy effect. And this isn't just true for vitamin D, it's true for many other nutrients that we need on a daily basis. You know, when the RDAs were established, these kinds of effects were not known. And so the RDA does not factor them in and is uh, likely way too low for, for that reason as well. 
The third issue with the RDA is that it's often out of date and has not been adjusted for important changes that have happened to the population. Most people don't know that the RDAs were originally designed by using average body weight of um, a typical adult male or female in the US. And uh, let me use magnesium as an example. Uh, the RDA for magnesium is currently 420 milligrams per day for an adult male and 360 milligrams per day for an adult female. Um, this was based on an average body weight. You know, back in 1997, when it was last updated, they used an average body weight for men uh, of 166 pounds and for women of 133 pounds. Now, in 2021, just last year, a group of researchers recalculated the RDA for magnesium based on updated average body weights, you know, because obviously body weight on average has increased in the US pretty dramatically, even over the past 20 years. So they updated the average body weights to 168 and a half pounds for women and 196 pounds for men. And then after doing that, they came up with a new RDA for adult men of 575 to 657 milligrams per day. So that's uh, over 200 milligrams per day more for men up, up to that amount. And then the RDA for adult women, they adjusted to 467 to 534 milligrams per day for, for women. So that's almost, uh, almost 200 milligrams per day more for, for, for women at the higher end of that range. Now, this is really alarming because the average intake of magnesium in the U.S. is just 340 to 344 milligrams per day for men and just 256 to 273 milligrams per day for women. So this is well below even the outdated RDA, but it's 200 to 300 milligrams per day less than the more accurate RDA that the researchers proposed. Uh, despite this, the RDA for magnesium has not been updated, and that means that statistics on magnesium deficiency are dramatically underestimating the prevalence of that in the population because they're using this outdated RDA. If we use this new RDA, basically almost 100% of people would be deficient in magnesium. And this is, uh, as a side note, one of the reasons that I've always recommended supplementing with magnesium even in people who are following a nutrient-dense diet because I've just seen you know, through this research and this published research and also tests that we've run on patients who come into the clinic that, that virtually everybody is falling short of, of the optimal magnesium intake. Okay, so we might think, all right, nutrient deficiency is a huge problem in people eating standard American diet with ultra-processed food, but I eat a nutrient-dense diet, so it's not an issue for me. I wish that, that were true. I really wish that that were true. Um, that was my my belief for many years, uh, with the exception of some nutrients like magnesium and vitamin D. And of course, there's no doubt that eating a nutrient-dense whole foods diet makes a huge difference in nutrient status. There are lots of studies to back this up, and it's just common sense. But unfortunately, there are several reasons why even people on nutrient-dense diets can fall short of the recommended intake of nutrients for optimal health, not just the RDA, but for optimal health. So one is the decline in soil quality over the past several decades. Uh, an example of this is we'd have to eat eight oranges today by some estimates to get the same amount of vitamin C and other nutrients that our grandparents would have gotten from eating a single orange. 
Uh, USDA data from 1950 to 1999 shows reliable declines in many different nutrients and minerals from 43 common crops. Uh, so just from 1975 to 1999, the average calcium in vegetables dropped by 27%, iron dropped by 37%, vitamin A by 21%, and vitamin C by 30%. Uh, other study has shown that between 1940 and 1991, magnesium content in vegetables decreased by 24%, fruit by 17%, and meat by 15%, and cheese by 36%. And in the UK, it's been a decline of about 35% across all those different food categories for magnesium. Um, the decline is probably even higher in 2022, but we, we, we don't have, you know, totally up-to-date research to reflect that. Now, according to some of the soil scientists that I've corresponded with, the issue is not that the nutrients aren't still present in the soil, it's that the composition of microbes in the soil has changed due to use of pesticides and other industrial farming practices. And this change in the microbe composition in the soil makes the nutrients it contains um, less available to the plants that are growing in that soil. So this is analogous, of course, to what's happened in our own guts. Antibiotics, other medication, poor diet, toxins, etc., disrupt our gut flora, and that leads to decreased absorption of nutrients from the food that we eat. So one way to think about this is that our farming practices have disrupted the gut microbiome of the soil, so to speak, and this in turn has decreased nutrient availability to the plants in that soil, which in turn has decreased the uh, amount of nutrients that we get even from eating whole foods. Another factor I think that has decreased the amount of nutrients that uh, people get even on a healthy diet is the dramatic rise in food intolerances. So almost everybody I know and certainly many of the patients that I work with are dealing with some kind of food intolerance, some category of food that they can't eat. Often even healthy categories of food like nightshades for example or nuts and seeds or dairy products or FODMAPs or something like that. And that has led to uh, a restricted diet for many, many people. And often um, they're not able to fully overcome those restrictions. So their, their diet remains limited and they just eat a, a, a more restic restricted uh, variety of foods. And of course, what that means is they're not getting as broad of a spectrum of nutrients. Uh, this is particularly common in kids and, and, and young people. And it's even more of a problem for them because uh, they have a greater demand for nutrients. Another issue is just the cultural shift in food preferences, um, particularly in the industrialized world. So, you know, I'm sure by now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, that or organ meats and shellfish are, are really among the most nutrient dense foods on the planet, ounce for ounce. Uh, also things like sea vegetables and, and various kinds of fermented foods. Uh, are up there on the list as well. Those foods have fallen out of favor. Um, most people I know do not eat liver or other organ meats and can't stomach them even if they know they should eat them. They're not eating a lot of shellfish or small dried fish or these other foods that always top the nutrient density list. They're not eating seaweeds or other sea vegetables. These are just not typical foods in the American or you know uh, industrialized country diets. Um, I recently had Ty Beal on my show to discuss his paper on nutrient density, and we talked about all of these foods uh, that are just so rich in so many of the essential micronutrients, 
And unfortunately, they're just not being consumed very often. So I think that's another major problem. Then we have uh, the rise of intermittent fasting and fasting. This is, of course, in more health conscious people, um, not an issue in the mainstream, but uh, intermittent fasting is fantastic. It has a lot of different health benefits. I'm a big believer when it's applied appropriately. But in some cases, there can be one potential downside, which is, let's say you're only eating two meals a day and you, and you decrease your calorie intake and you're not eating the same amount of food or calories, which is often the case. And, and it's probably one of the reasons intermittent fasting can work for weight loss. Or some people even go more radical and they go down to one meal a day. Um, if you're eating that much less food, you're just by definition going to get that many fewer nutrients. There's no way around that. And like I said, while I think there are many benefits of intermittent fasting, that is one potential downside. And then lastly, if you just look at comparisons of, of nutrient intakes from uh, the Paleolithic era, you know, we have some anthropological studies that looked at extant hunter-gatherer groups and quantified their nutrient intakes and compared those to nutrient intakes in uh, the modern world and in, in, especially in the industrialized world, you just see that basically all the way down the line, uh, you know, from essential vitamins to essential minerals to phytonutrients to fiber, there's a dramatic decline in average nutrient intake across the board uh, from people who were following, you know, kind of paleolithic lifestyle to people in the modern world. And I think that has to do with all of the factors that we've talked about so far. So my clinical experience, you know, in addition to the research that I've just been talking about, definitely backs this up. Uh, even the most motivated, you know, I've worked with some of the most motivated people <laughs> that are around, you know, the, the folks who come and see me are not typically people who are just following a standard American diet. I, I probably had like less than a handful of those over almost 15 years of clinical practice. But even, even the people I work with who are highly motivated and following a great diet are often not getting enough of certain nutrients. How do I know this? Well, we test people for nutrients in the clinic and we do it a couple different ways. We do blood testing, uh, urine organic acids, and uh, other types of testing that can be helpful for clarifying nutrient status, uh, sometimes hair testing, depends on the nutrient. And then we also have everybody use Chronometer, which is an app that where they can carefully track their food intake over a period of three days and it spits out a full nutrient analysis. And on the basis of both of these types of testing, we have, I, almost everybody, almost every patient I work with over the years is short of some of the essential nutrients. Uh, the most common would be vitamin D, magnesium, folate, B12, preformed vitamin A, uh, retinol, choline, K2, and calcium. Um, but I will say that in, in more than a decade of clinical practice, it, it, it's, it's only a few patients I can remember that we've gone through this process with that are at 100% or more of all of the uh, needed nutrients. So what do we do with this information? Well, to be honest, I struggled with it for quite a while. Initially in my career, I had a strong belief that we should be able to meet most nutrient needs from food. I still have that belief if, if, that we should be able to, I, I want to be able to, but that belief just kept bumping up against um, the reality of what I was seeing in the published scientific literature and the reality of what I was seeing in my clinical practice with patients and, and the testing that we were doing 
and the impact that those deficiencies uh, of nutrients was having on people. I mean, I've known for a long time that it wasn't really possible for most of us to meet our vitamin D or magnesium needs uh, through diet. So I've always recommended uh, supplementing with them even on a maintenance basis. But after all of this clinical experience treating patients and all of this research, I have had to face the music and uh, recognize that many of us are not able to uh, meet all of our nutrient needs through food alone and that supplementing with additional nutrients in a really smart way is probably a good idea for most of us if if we're interested in, in reaching that optimal nutrient status and maximizing our health. So I started doing this myself uh, a few years ago and suggesting it to patients. And the results have been, as you might imagine, very positive, both in terms of subjective health benefits and in terms of testing, both the lab testing and chronometer output. But there was a big issue, which is that none of the multivitamin, multimineral products out there uh, measured up for me. Uh, as you know, I have very high standards here and I, I know what's important in a, a nutrient product. So a lot of the multis out there have too much of the wrong nutrient. For example, they have high doses of calcium, which we know uh, so that if you take too much supplemental calcium, it can increase the risk of heart disease or kidney stones. They have high doses of iron, uh, which you know, for, for some people can be problematic if they have a tendency toward iron overload, which um, is not uncommon in, in the industrialized world or they have tocopherol, vitamin E tocopherols, like alpha tocopherol. Um, if you listen to my podcast with Barry Tan, we know that supplementing with alpha tocopherol can actually increase the risk of cancer and heart disease instead of having uh, tocotrienols, which are the more beneficial isomers of vitamin E. Or maybe the multi has not enough of the, the right nutrients that we actually want more of, like uh, vitamin K2 would be a good example, vitamin D is a good example, magnesium. Um, or the product doesn't have the right forms of the nutrients. Um, so I, for many years, I've talked about the importance of supplementing with folate rather than folic acid for vitamin B9 because unmetabolized folic acid, you know, some people don't process folic acid well. It's a synthetic form. And if you un unmetabolized folic acid has been shown to lead to uh, a bunch of problems in, in some people who are susceptible to that. Uh, and people who have methylation problems are definitely uh, am among the people who are susceptible. Then you have uh, cyanocobalamin, which is a cheaper form of vitamin B12. It's not as well absorbed uh, as methylcobalamin or adenosylcobalamin. Those are just a couple examples, but there are many, many more. And and even even what we're talking about here is with pretty good quality multivitamins from, you know, reputable manufacturers. We're not even yet talking about just the cheap multivitamins you get from like uh, Walmart or Walgreens or places like that. Most of those just have lots of fillers, binders, artificial ingredients. They're, they're just really cheap quality. They don't have, you know, therapeutic doses of, or, or, you know, meaningful doses of the, the right nutrients. So, I was just really unimpressed with the uh, quality of products out there. And so with my own patients and with myself, I had to cobble together a bunch of different products, which is, of course is expensive, led to taking tons and tons of pills and is, is just a pain. So when I decided to create my own supplement line, Adapt Naturals, 
this is one of the major problems that I was trying to solve. And the result is a product called BioAvail Multi. So this is one of the five products in the, in the bundle, the Core uh, Plus bundle that we're launching with in July. I mentioned BioAvail Myco, the mushroom product earlier. That's one of the others. But this is a multivitamin, multimineral phytonutrient blend. It mimics nutrient intakes that are found in, in an ancestral diet. So that was a goal for me when, I, when we set out to uh, curate this product was we wanted to have something that reflect, reflected the same roughly uh, ratios and amounts of nutrients that we would get in an actual ancestral diet before all of the native uh, the the things happen in the modern lifestyle that i talked about before that are decreasing our nutrient intake like declines in soil quality and changes in food preferences etc so i wanted to create a product that corresponds to a whole food nutrient dense diet uh, and then of course i wanted to have all of the, the ingredients and forms of the nutrients should be food-based or naturally occurring or bioidentical. So, you know, folate instead of folic acid, methylcobalamin instead of cyanocobalamin, uh, MK4 and MK7 forms of, of K2 and even MK9 and, and other uh, menaquinones. So all, you know, all of the most bioavailable, highly absorbable and natural forms of ingredients that we would find. And then in addition to the key or essential vitamins and minerals, um, I wanted to also contain clinically relevant doses of phytonutrients that have been shown to be beneficial for health. So we know that essential mineral, uh, nutrients like vitamin A, uh, vitamin D, vitamin K2, and then minerals like iron, zinc, uh, magnesium, the body can't manufacture those and we absolutely need those for health. We can die without them. But there, this other class of nutrients, like these phytonutrients, they may not be essential for health in the sense that we can, you know, literally survive without them. But a huge growing body of research suggests that they are definitely essential for optimal health. And these are uh, compounds like lutein, lycopene, bioflavonoids, uh, you know, some of the phenolic compounds that we talked about earlier. And these were almost certainly consumed in much greater quantities in the past by our ancestors. And they're still consumed in greater quantities by people who are living uh, a lifestyle that's closer to our ancestral lifestyle. Uh, most multis on the market are designed to meet the RDA. Uh, we've talked about the problems with that, right? The RDA is insufficient for optimal health for almost all of the nutrients. So this product was formulated using both the principles of evolutionary biology and modern clinical research to determine what the optimal amount of nutrients is, not just the RDA. So again, uh, BioVail Multi will be available as part of the Core Plus bundle, which is launching in July. And uh, really looking forward to telling you more about the, this product as well as the other products that will be in the bundle. So stay tuned for more information. Okay, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening today. I hope this was helpful. And keep sending your questions in to chriscrosser.com slash podcast question. Uh, we have some really interesting shows coming up, including an uh, interview with Dr. Christopher Hobbs, a medicinal mushroom expert, where we're going to go do a, a very deep dive uh, on that topic, which I, as you can see, I'm really excited about, and I hope you are too. And I will talk to you next time. Take care, everybody. And that's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. 
If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer in a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.